St. Rose of Lima once said, without the burden of afflictions, it is impossible to reach the height of grace. The gift of grace increases as the struggle increases. Welcome to the sixth episode of St. Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP if you want to be cool. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because we need to realize two things. First, that our afflictions and our burdens can actually be opportunities for incredible grace. And second, that even though that's true, we still need to help each other and suffer alongside each other with an incredible love and compassion rather than just simply telling everyone to offer it up and carry their cross. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. First up, Steve stepped into the DMs to suggest a discussion of our fourth commandment obligation toward mentally ill and abusive parents, quote, my mother has borderline personality disorder and I've had to break all contact with her in order to ensure the physical and mental safety of me and my family. I sometimes wonder if praying for her is enough and I've never asked a priest about it for fear he will say I ought to physically care for her, not understanding that I'd be putting myself in harm's way. End quote. Okay, step one. Let's join together in prayer for Steve, his family, and his mother because prayer really works, especially when we can gather together to support each other. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. Step two, I want to take a quick step back and fill people in on borderline personality disorder, especially because it has recently become a diagnosis people throw around all the time without much understanding of what it means. The easiest way I can help you understand what borderline personality disorder is is to share the phrase, I hate you, don't leave me. This is a way of understanding how people with BPD function in relationships. An extreme fear of abandonment combined with behaviors that work hard to destroy relationships so that when an abandonment happens, there will be a reason outside of the person themselves. For those who enjoyed my dip into the DSM in a previous episode, let's jump in again for those who didn't, sorry. Borderline personality disorder needs to include at least five of the following to be handed out as a diagnosis. Ready? One, frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. Two, a pattern of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships characterized by alternating between the extremes of idealization and devaluation. Three, identity disturbance, markedly and persistently unstable self-image or sense of self. Four, impulsivity in at least two areas that are self-damaging, like spending, sex, substance abuse, reckless driving, binge eating, you know. Five, recurrent suicidal behavior, gestures, threats, or self-mutilating behavior like self-harm. Six, effective instability due to a marked reactivity and mood. Seven, chronic feelings of emptiness. Eight, inappropriate intense anger or difficulty controlling anger. And nine, transient stress-related paranoid ideation, being paranoid. So you got to have at least five out of those nine to get the diagnosis. As a therapist, our red flags for this mental health issue typically start waving if a patient comes in and starts telling you within the first few sessions or two, or the first few sessions, how you're the best therapist they've ever met and how they're making more progress with you than anyone they've ever worked with before. If we hear that, we brace ourselves for the moment that's going to be coming right around the corner where they say you're the worst person we've ever met. It's, it's coming, you know, so we're always worried about it. Back to Steve. The commandment to honor our father and mother can be incredibly difficult when our parents are destructive 
destructive to our own well-being and that of our family, especially our children. So how do we balance it? How do we make sure we're honoring our parents while also keeping ourselves safe and healthy? Praying is definitely a great place to start. I think sometimes I'm like you, Steve, and I say something like, is prayer really enough? And for me, if I reflect deep down, it shows me that I don't really believe prayer is as powerful as it is. Praying for her is an incredible way to honor her. And I have to say that it's impressive that you pray for her, given all she's most likely put you through all these years. Most of us find it incredibly difficult to pray for those who have injured us. And in doing that, you're following one of Christ's most difficult commands to pray for those who have done us harm. If a priest told you you weren't doing enough, it would be clear that he didn't have a proper understanding of what borderline personality disorder can do to relationships. That being said, this is a time for an incredibly important reminder that I'm sure you've already realized, but I think needs to be said again and again. People with mental health issues often act in ways that are beyond their control, and if they had the ability to choose, they would most certainly choose not to act in the manner which the illness causes them to act. This is especially true of personality disorders, which are typically developed after years and years of trauma, difficult relationships, and repeated abandonments. As terrible as your mother may have been, she most likely had terrible things happen to her that led to her developing this personality issue, this new way of being that may have been necessary for her to survive at some point, and then spun and spun into a continued unhealthy pattern of being. Again, I'm sure you know, but for those who don't, personality disorders are notoriously difficult to treat, but it's not something that you can take medication for. I mean, there's treatment out there, but you can't just take a pill and feel better and start acting healthier, right? It's because it's the culmination of deep ways of being that are extremely difficult to untangle and rewire. So that's helpful to keep in mind. We'll be praying for you, Steve, and please let your heart rest at ease that praying for your mother and ensuring that she doesn't do further harm to you or your family is the best way to follow the fourth commandment. Deep down inside, underneath all the I hate you, don't leave me actions, she doesn't want to hurt you or your family. But since she can't help herself, creating boundaries that you hold to over time is actually one of the best ways you can help her. Next up, Anonymous came by to ask, quote, can people request anointing of the sick for the persistent experience of mental illness? Not in the sense that you expect a cure, but more like anyone else would do for perseverance, blessing, and so on. Awesome question, Anonymous, and one that a lot of people have checked in to ask. And I'm really excited because I get to read Canon Law on the podcast. How nerdy is that? Canon 1004 says, one, the anointing of the sick can be administered to a member of the faithful who, after having reached the age and use of reason, begins to be in danger due to sickness or old age. Two, the sacrament can be repeated whenever the sick person again falls into a serious sickness after convalescence or whenever a more serious crisis develops due to the same sickness. Those who satisfy three conditions may be anointed. One, a baptized Catholic. Two, reaching the age of reason, as I said. And three, begun to be in danger from illness or the infirmities of age or have become sick again or underwent a further crisis. It should be noted that the danger need only have begun to exist. The person does not have to be in imminent danger of dying. I'm no canon lawyer, but mental health issues, especially when someone is in a crisis, seem to fit the criteria to gain the strength through God's grace to continue to fight the crisis. And I think it's an absolutely beautiful way to recognize God's saving power and welcome him into our hearts and our minds. So go get that anointing, baby. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request. And today I'm introducing you to St. Jane Francis de Chantal. (laughs) 
Wife, mother, nun, founder of a religious community, Jane did it all. Her mother died when she was just 18 months old. Her father was the head of parliament in Dijon, France. I'm assuming the place where the mustard comes from. She married a baron at the age of 21 and had six children, though three of them died in infancy. In spite of her grief, or perhaps because of it, she brought the Catholic heat to the castle she called home, restoring daily mass and engaging in charitable works. But after seven years of marriage, her husband was murdered and she sank into a deep and dark depression. She moved back to her childhood home after that. Her father-in-law then threatened to disinherit the kids if she didn't return to the castle and take care of them. And even though he was a total jerk, she did it for the sake of her children and took care of him cheerfully. When she was 32, she met St. Francis de Sales, like really met him, no joke, and he became her spiritual director. Eventually, he told her of his plan to found an institute of women that would be a haven for those whose health, age, or other considerations barred them from entering the already established religious communities. There would be no cloister, and they would be free to undertake spiritual and corporal works of mercy. They were primarily intended to exemplify the virtues of Mary at the visitation, humility, and meekness. She entered, but it wasn't easy. During her religious life, she had to undergo great trials of spirit, interior anguish, darkness, spiritual dryness, and she did, uh, sorry, she died while on a visit to convents in the community. St. Jane is an incredible witness to perseverance in the midst of depression and darkness and pushing on by the grace of Christ. And she's an incredible intercessor for all of us suffering from child loss, the death of a spouse, or any other kind of circumstance leading us to depression and hopelessness. As always, we like to close it out with a prayer to this beloved saint. O glorious saint, blessed Jane Francis, by fervent prayer, attention to the divine presence, and purity of intention, you attained on earth an intimate union with God. Be now our advocate, our mother, our guide in the path of virtue and perfection. Place our, plead our cause near Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, to whom you were so tenderly devoted, and whose holy virtues you so closely imitated. Obtain for us, O amiable and compassionate saint, the virtues you deem most necessary for us, an ardent love of Jesus and the most holy sacrament, a tender and filial confidence in his blessed mother, and like you, a constant remembrance of his sacred passion and death. Obtain also, we pray, that the particular intentions we hold in our hearts while we pray this prayer may be granted. Pray for us, O holy Saint Jane Francis, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. And now, you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. First up, we have a DM from Anonymous, quote, my spouse has been diagnosed with generalized anxiety and is very triggered by the clerical abuse crisis. The result is that I've been going to mass alone for months now, and I fear my spouse won't return to the church. I try to be patient, and I pray constantly for conversion, but I'm at a loss as to what else I can do. What's your advice for someone who feels the need to be apart from the sacraments for their mental health? I know the sacraments are still valid even if administered by a sinful priest, but how can I lead with empathy while trying to gently guide my spouse back into full communion with the church and quote. Let's all stop what we're doing and pray for this listener, her spouse, everyone who's away from the church because of the scandals, and everyone who goes to Mass without their spouse for any reason. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. 
So one way to cope with anxiety is to avoid everything that triggers it. In your spouse's case, that's the church, mass, priests. And while that might help as anxiety, it's a problem for you guys. Your prayer and offering up your sacrifice is incredibly powerful during this time. And it could be precisely the thing that saves him, right? Imagine the incredible grace he can receive if you offer your reception of the Eucharist for him. Asking God to take the graces you would receive and pouring it into your spouse, spouse's heart. It's beautiful, right? That being said, it might not make things any easier in the tangible here and now. So how can you take the take the lead and bring him back to feeling comfortable with being at church and receiving the sacraments we all so badly need? I have two suggestions. But first, the, the, the thought just occurred to me that the reason why the church is triggering to his anxiety needs to get flushed out. Did he experience trauma or abuse as a child? Did he experience something like that at the hands of the church? If so, that experience needs to be validated and his anxiety normalized before moving forward. So my idea is first, a frank discussion about the truth of the church being true no matter what has happened or will happen. Did Jesus leave the Eucharist for our spiritual benefit? If so, like you said, the church can be overflowing with sinners and hypocrites. I mean, it is, right? And yet the Eucharist is still real and still something we need, still something we have to have to survive this journey. Second, an exploration of the best way to deal with anxiety. Avoidance of triggers is something we all do to save us from feeling uncomfortable, but it doesn't fix the problem. It only puts it off and most of us can't avoid triggers forever. The best way to cope with the trigger, as long as the triggering situation isn't one that makes you physically unsafe, is to sit in the triggering experience, sit with the anxiety as it builds, and sit it out until the anxiety slowly begins to fade. It does fade because we can't stay at that heightened state forever, but it's really hard work to expose ourselves to anxiety and sit with it. But once we can do that, the triggering event will slowly become less triggering because our brain learns that it will eventually fade away. All that said, be at peace. Let him take his time. God understands what, what's going on for him. God sees your love and concern for him, and God is waiting to envelop you both in his unfathomable and infinite ocean of mercy. Next up, quote, I'd love to hear you comment on some of the struggles of long-term treatment and recovery. There seems to be a huge focus on getting help initially, which is super important, but little discussion of the trials that come during the long years of healing. It can be so hard to hold on to hope after the stumbles that happen years into counseling and meds and spiritual direction. Sometimes I drive myself crazy wondering, uh, wondering what I'm not doing right or falling back into depression after months or years of feeling good and trying not to become discouraged. What an awesome question to toss in the hat. Thank you so much for reaching out. Recovery from mental illness is a lifelong journey filled with ups and downs, good days and bad. Heck, good years and bad. And it's so vital that we remember this for a couple of reasons. First, we need to remember that we need to walk alongside those suffering from mental illness forever. We don't stop walking with them because they have a decrease in symptoms or simply because they started therapy or medication. Second is that when we're getting help for our mental health, we have to remember that symptoms naturally rise and fall, and we shouldn't be discouraged if after after a couple of months uh, of wellness, we have a relapse in symptoms. In fact, we should prepare for it when we're feeling well and draw up a wellness recovery action plan to use when we're feeling crappy, as I've touched on in previous episodes. The typical rule of thumb for people coming in for medication for mental illness that I've always heard is that it takes about three tries before they find the meds that'll help them in a way they feel good about. And even after that, many people report, for example, Lexapro worked great for me for nine months, then all of a sudden it stopped working and I've had to change to Cymbalta and now I'm feeling great again. Just as an example, mind you, I'm a therapist, not a doctor, and I'm not endorsing a medication. I'm just trying to, you know, 
tell you how it works <laughs> from what I've heard. Just remember this. A return of symptoms isn't about something you're not doing right. Let me use a non-mental health example from my own life as a corollary. Our youngest son was born with a skin condition called ichthyosis, a condition that causes dry skin all over his body. The doctor told us to use a certain cream to help his symptoms, and doing it worked so well. But then the dryness returned, moved to different areas, looked different from day to day, and my wife and I were equal parts baffled, stressed, and feeling guilty about the possibility that we weren't doing the right thing, even though we didn't change his routine. We went to the doctor, and she informed us that symptoms get better, get worse, get better, get worse, and that the cream helps, but the symptoms can just all of a sudden get worse even though we keep up the same routine for his care. She reminded us that we can't beat ourselves up because the symptoms will flare up in spite of what we do. And instead of wondering if we screwed up, we have to change our approach based on the presentation of the symptoms that day. I like to use physical health examples when talking about mental health because it helps to break down that wall we all have around mental health where we think we should just be able to get better on our own when no one really thinks that about physical health concerns. My point here is that our mental health symptoms our depression, our anxiety, our nightmares, our binge eating, our lack of eating anything at all for the sake of having some sense of control can get worse even when we're doing what we're supposed to do to stay healthy. It isn't our fault, but we do need to prepare ourselves to be ready to modify our approach when we're feeling that way. And we have to make those preparations when we're feeling healthy. I hope that helps. Last up today, an email from Alejandro, quote, is mental illness something God has given me? How can I feel loved by God if he himself has given me the greatest struggle of my existence? Thanks for checking in, Alejandro. What a great question. And not only does it relate to the topic of mental illness, but everything that happens in our life. Did God give me mental illness? Did God want my child to die? Did God give me cancer? And if the answer is yes, God permitted these things to happen in our lives, how in the world can we feel loved by him? It's really the age-old question of evil, the most difficult question when it comes to loving and believing in an all-good God, right? All these challenges that come from new atheists are completely lame when compared to the challenge. Why would an all-good, all-loving God allow terrible things to happen to us? I only bring this up to help you see that you aren't alone in this question, Alejandro. All of us are in this together, wondering how to feel loved by a God who permits these horrible things to happen in our lives. Death, illness, loss, homelessness, natural disaster, and yes, mental illness. So let's hit it on the head with the obvious caveat that I'm no theologian, and this is just my opinion as a Catholic and a therapist. Is mental illness something God has given me? Not exactly. Mental illness is something that happens to a lot of us, either for biological reasons or for circumstances that happen in our life like trauma. If the question is, did God positively do something that caused me to have mental illness, like he zapped me and boom, I'm bipolar? I would say no, but God knew that you would have mental illness and he allowed it to happen. I'm not sure if that distinction makes sense the way I'm phrasing it, but there's a difference between actively causing something to happen and knowing it would happen and permitting it. Now on to the more pressing question. How can I feel loved by God if he himself has given me the greatest struggle of my existence? This is a question all of us suffering ask, and that's pretty much all of us. If God loves me, why does he allow me to struggle and to suffer so much during my life? 
The answer I've found doesn't make life on earth any easier. Let me start by saying that. But it helps, but our faith helps me to comprehend it and be at peace with it, even though life is still a big struggle. And the answer I found is this, Alejandro. God wants us to become saints and for all of us to help everyone we meet become saints. 1 Timothy 2.4 makes this quite clear. I know this is a Catholic show, but a little Bible quoting can't hurt, right? Everything that happens in our life, the good, the medium, the terrible, all of it, is geared toward making us saints. The love we can give and receive in relationships feels good and helps us become saints. The pain of losing a loved one feels awful and helps us become saints. The struggle of having mental illness, something that can make the mere act of functioning absolutely debilitating and persist for the entirety of our life sucks and it helps us to become saints and gives us the opportunity to help others become saints by showing them love as they struggle with mental illness. And it gives us an opportunity to offer up our suffering for the salvation of souls. Like I said, the answer I've come up with doesn't make suffering any easier in an immediate practical sense, but if we can view everything that happens to us through this lens, it does give purpose to our suffering, to our illness, to our struggle. There is something beyond this life, even though I know it doesn't feel like it a lot of the time. And that something that lies beyond our senses at the current moment is worth the struggle, it's worth the pain, and it's worth everything this world will throw at us. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in the future. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna.